Hope everybody's doing okay today. Uh, my name is Brian Lamb. For those of you that, that don't know me, uh, I, I do a couple things here at the church. Mainly, I uh, work with the student ministry and then also with the worship team and technology and done a couple other things around the church as well. And so Jason's going to be out for the next two weeks in the Philippines as he's on the mission trip with the, with the others. And, um, and I think everything is going very well and um, safe arrival and as far as I know as I can see. And so uh, I'll be here this week and obviously and then next week as well. And then Jason will be back with you guys for the last week of uh, last Sunday in June. And so um, I do have one announcement before we start. And that is that in about 10 days, uh, we're going to have our student ministry um, going to summer camp, uh, youth summer camp. It's our annual camp that we go to every year. And so we are very excited about uh, this week. Uh, God does amazing things through camp. Um, I think some of the students and kids think that like God just lives at camp. Um, he doesn't. But uh, he does many, many times uh, just use camp as a tool to call students to salvation, to, um, to work in their lives for them to grow and to mature um, as teenagers in Christ and all these things. And so um, really I, the, the reason I'm telling you all this is because we do have a need today and I wanted to bring before the church and that is that we have uh, nine students that are in need of a scholarship to be able to go to, to camp. And so I've been doing this for, uh, this is my sixth year to take a, a group from Solid Rock and in the entire time I've been here, every year we have students Students that are just not able to go, they're, you know, they're they're able to or not able to, to pay for it. They're able to go and they have the forms and all those things. Everything's good. They just don't have the finances to get there. And so, um, in my six years, there's never been a time where I've had to sit across from a student and say, "I'm sorry, but you can't go because we don't have funds." And that's because you guys have always come through. Um, and so, I first of all want to just thank you for your faithfulness to uh, um, to support this ministry and everything that God is doing in it. And then also just make you aware that that is a need again. This year, I think last year we had like 15 students that needed scholarships, and I remember I was just kind of going crazy, freaking out, like, how are we going to do this? I don't want to have to have that conversation with one person, much less 15. Um, and then the Lord provided and provided and provided, and as I was just just praying to Him, I remember like the week before, and He provided 15 scholarships. And so, anyways, uh, it is $215 per kid um, to be able to go to camp, uh, but any amount um, is a huge, huge help. $5, $20, anything that you can do uh, would be a huge help. And so if you are uh, wanting to do that, then please make sure that you put on the envelope um, that you put your money in, that you put Camp Refuge or Camp Scholarship. And if you're um, doing a check, make it out to Solid Rock Church. And then in the memo, you would put Camp Scholarship or Camp Refuge. And I'll be down um, at the front after service if you have any questions about that or if you need more information or anything like that. And so thank you always for your, uh, your help in that and your prayers and everything. So, um, as always, it is, is truly uh, an honor, and I don't want to get away from that. It's truly an honor for me to stand up here before you and to be able to open the Word of God with you, whether it's a Wednesday night with a bunch of teenagers who are talking through my entire sermons, or it's a uh, Sunday morning where everybody's paying attention and listening because we're adults. Uh, it, it's always a privilege, um, I view, and an honor to be able to stand up here and preach the Word of God. It's a blessing from the Lord that I'm able uh, to do that. And so I just want to always start off with that, not forgetting that. Um, in the book of, we, we've been in the book of Hebrews in the, the Hebrews series that's called Jesus is Better. We've been here for the past five weeks, and uh, we've been seeing that Jesus is truly better. It's been an awesome series for us to be in. Uh, we're going to continue in this series this week. We're going to finish up chapter five, and we're going to go into chapter six until verse 12. And so this passage that we're going to be in this morning is um, 
possibly one of the most challenging and weighty passages of all of the Bible. Um, because there's going to be a tendency as we read this for some of us to uh, be fearful of our salvation as Christians. I remember the first time I read this, I was at Jason Williams' house um, in Lipan, and he, we read this together. I think Jason Lewis was there as well, and I just read it, and I'm like, oh my gosh, like, am I even a Christian? Like, this is crazy. And then I remember like, just getting ready for this passage. It's just been, it's been hard. Um, and I, I, I've found myself just evaluating my walk as a Christ follower and just doing all of these things. And, and really what I'm saying in all of this is I think that we are to absolutely um, have a fear of God, that the Bible calls us to fear God, but not in a way that it's scary fear where we run away or we hide or we close our eyes or whatever it is, but it's a fear that is supposed to drive us humbly into the arms of the Lord. And so my prayer today is that as we read this, that we would not come away um, uncertain or scared or fearful in the bad way, but that we would come away um, fearful of the Lord in a way that drives us into the grace and power of God. That's my prayer for all of us today as we read this. And so um, let's get into it in verse 11 of chapter 5. It says this, it says, About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Chapter 6, verse 1 says... Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God but if it bears thorns and thistles it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned verse 9 Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So that's a lot to do this morning, and we can do it, I promise. We're going to get through it. We got through it in the first service, we're going to get through it in this service. It may just take us a second. So at first glance, we look at this, and there seems to be, as, as I read this first time, there seems to be two competing ideas, two, two, uh, two competing um, problems as we see here. So not problems, but we have a problem and we have a progress, okay? 
I don't know if, you, if you've seen that in there. And so there's, there's a very strong call as we look at this, a challenge to the Hebrew people to evaluate their relationship with Jesus. But then there's also a praise and encouragement of the progress that they've, that's come from their relationship with Jesus. And so in this passage, we see that the author's challenging them because there's potential for a very big problem to occur amongst these people. But at the same time, he's also praising them because there's progress happening in these people. And so he's saying, on one hand, you need to grow in your relationship with Christ. You're a bunch of babies still on milk, and you should be on solid food by now. He's saying that there are deeper things to have in Christ, that there's deeper maturity to be had in Jesus if you were a follower of Jesus and you are lacking in these things. But then he also says, though I see evidence of your relationship and your fruit with Jesus because I see your, your work and your love for the saints, and so be assured in the hope of Christ that you have. And so there's two things going on here, and in the middle, in verses 4 through 8 of chapter 6, there's a great, great warning to them as well. So I like to think about it like this. Like if I went home and I did the dishes for Allie, my wife, um, then like that would be some great progress for me, right? Like I, I love her and I, and I want to help her, and so I go home and I do the dishes. That's great progress for me. But if when she gets home, I look at her and she walks in the door and I say, hey, honey, I did the dishes for you, now make me a sandwich. Then like, I've got a huge, huge problem with me. And let's not even talk about Allie. Like, there's just a problem with me because I'm making a stupid, dumb comment, aren't I? Right? And so while there may have been some progress happening there because I didn't come home and just plop on the couch and watch TV, but I tried to help my wife, but the absurd demand that I deserve a sandwich because I did dishes means there's a problem in my heart. And maybe even in our marriage. So, so, fellas, if you like to make those jokes or do those things or whatever, guess what? Next week is, um, I'm preaching on biblical manhood, so spoiler alert, we'll get to have a lot of fun with that. Um, that's not the point of this, but, but on, what the, we're seeing here is that there's a, there's a challenge to the Hebrew people because there's some, there's some problems going on, but there's also a praise because there's some progress. And so while these two things may seem like they're at odds, they're creating some tension, they're actually working together for the good of the brother and sister reading this. And so let's get into the problem that we see here first in verse 11. It says, about this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. And so he says, about this, we have much to say, meaning he's already said some things in this letter that have great significance to them. He's saying, though, but we can't really explain these things to you because you, aren't, you won't get it. You're dull in your hearing. And so he's saying, I believe that he's talking about the significance of Jesus as our high priest uh, that we learned last week from Jason. There's probably some other things, that, of these significant things that he wants to say, but he's saying there's a problem here. I can't talk about these things because you won't understand them. He's saying there's so much more that I want to teach you about Jesus. There's more life to be had in Jesus. There's deeper maturity to be had in Jesus. There's more beauty of Jesus. There's um, more awe to be in awe of Jesus. There's all these things, and, and I, I would love to show these things to you. I'd love to teach these things to you. I'd love for your soul to grasp just how big and glorious and mighty God is, but I can't do that because you won't understand what I'm saying. These are some significant things that you will not get. Somewhere along the way, you have stopped growing in your faith. You've become stagnant in your faith, and you will not be able to understand these things because you're dull. You can't hear. 
And so the author is addressing the fact that they have become slothful and they become lazy and they've turned their affections to other things than the Lord. They've traded the eternal joy with God for temporal joy in the things around them. And the cause of these things is going to be the fact that they cannot hear him. They cannot understand him. And so if you like look through the book of Hebrews, you'll see this problem all throughout it. You'll see what all is wrong with the Hebrew church. In chapter 2, it says that they are drifting into lives of sin and away from the truth of the gospel. In chapter 3, it says that they're neglecting the great salvation that they claim to have. In chapter 4 and 6, it says that their joy and their zeal and their hope is slipping away from them, that their ears are getting dull, that they're losing the desire to grow in the Lord and be sanctified by him. In chapter 10, it says that they're becoming selfish and they're neglecting love and good works towards one another. They're neglecting to be a loving community for one another. It also says that they are not wanting to endure suffering and neglecting the value of their salvation. And then finally, in chapter 12, it says that they're becoming weak, sluggish, and lazy people. And the result of all of these things is absolutely catastrophic because they are, they are going to a place where they are not able to hear from the living God. They are stagnant in their relationship with Jesus and they are not building upon the foundation of faith that they have in Jesus and possibly proving that they are not even rooted in Jesus to begin with. And then we get to verse 12 and we see him kind of map this problem out and and he begins to call them away from these things and call them to mature and grow in Christ. It says in verse 12, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And so what we see here is he uses this contrast, this, I would say, kind of harsh analogy. He talks about teachers and students, and he talks about um, people on milk and people on solid food. And so he uses these two analogies to call them, to challenge them, um, to wake up from their sloth and their complacency. The first one he does, he says, by this time, you ought to be teachers. Meaning, you've been in the faith long enough to where you should be instructing and leading others by now, but you can't because you still need somebody to teach you the basics of the faith. He's saying, by now, you should, you should know these things, that, that you should move on from the fact that two plus two equals four, and you should be teaching calculus by now. Maybe not calculus. That's kind of hard, right? Maybe geometry, algebra. So he's saying, you're not, you're not growing. You're not where you need to be. Now, I don't believe he's saying that every person that matures in Christ should be preaching on Sundays. I don't think that's the pinnacle of maturity in Christ. I don't even think he's saying that every person that matured in Christ looks like that every person is a small group leader. I think what he's talking about here is that he's saying that as we mature in Christ, we should be able to make disciples for him. 
We should be able to go to the nations and make disciples for Christ. That, that we should all be able to in our homes and in our workplaces and in our relationships and in our communities and everywhere that we go, we should be able to tell others and teach others about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and the significance of the good news of Jesus. We should be able to show G people how to follow Jesus and we should be able to do all this with how we live our lives in front of them. That the mature in Christ is able to teach and love and encourage our friends, our families, our coworkers, or whoever it is in front of us about the good news of Jesus. And then he, I think he gets even more real with them. He basically says, hey, you're a bunch of little kids playing in the kiddie pool and you need to get out. He says, basically, like, put your floaties away. Let's get up and let's grow up. He says here, you need milk, not solid food. And so he's saying here, by now, you should all be on solid food, but you're on milk. You're little children who are drinking their bottles. You should be eating some steak and some potatoes by now, but you can't because you are still drinking the milk. He's saying you're not where you're supposed to be. You should have grown beyond this by now. So, this past weekend, I was able to uh, spend some time with one of my four uh, amazing nephews. I've got all uh, boys on, on both sides of the family, which is awesome because that just means Allie and I are going to have a girl. So anyways, they're fun. Um, so I love girls. I'm, just, I'm not sorry. Anyways, um, so, you know, I got to spend some time with him. His name's Miller. I love Miller. So he's in this stage. He's almost three. He's in this stage. He just doesn't want to wear pants, doesn't want to wear shorts, it's just not what he wants to do. So, you know, and he can do that because he's a kid, right? And so he, you know, yesterday he wakes up. We watch him. Uh, we were watching him so that uh, our, my brother-in-law and sister could go on their anniversary um, night. And so Allie and I get to have our first little, well, not our first, but one of our little uh, shots at parenthood. And so, uh, so he wakes up on Saturday morning and he tells Allie, he goes, I want my Elmo shirt and I want my Elmo socks and no pants. And it's like, cool, Miller, you can, you can do that because you're a kid, right? Like, like, he could even get away with it in public if he really wanted to, right? But for me, if I take my pants off in public, like, there's going to be some problems. The police are probably going to be called, right? Like, I just sit down at dinner. Well, wait, I got to take my pants off first. Like, it's just not going to be a good day for me at all. But if Miller did that out in public, it'd be cute. And so what he's saying here is he's saying, look, you guys are adults, but you're acting like kids, He's saying, you're in, the, you're in the kiddie pool playing around. You're still walking around with your pants off, and you need to get up out of the kiddie pool. You need to put some pants on and act like you are supposed to be. You're not where you're supposed to be. And so both you know, Peter and Paul, they use this analogy in their letters with an infant Christian and the fact that infant Christians need the milk of the gospel, but they also say that you are to grow into manhood and womanhood of our faith. And so this is saying that, that the, the milk of the gospel, the basics of Jesus are extremely important, but there's a time where we should no longer be on the ABCs of our faith. There's a time where we should no longer be drinking the milk of our faith, as important as they are, but we should be teachers and we should be eating solid food. In verses 13 and 14, look there with me, he describes what, it, what he means by milk and solid food. He says that those that are on milk are like children and they are unskilled in the word of righteousness. 
And then he describes those that are on solid food as mature, different than children, different than those that are on milk, because they are people that are able to discern between good and evil. And so he's saying that our maturity in Christ has great significance for us to be able to walk by faith in the good works that God has for us. Our um, maturity in Christ has great significance in us to be able to discern between good and evil and for us to grow in righteousness. And so the author of Hebrews here, one, he's writing to Christians. And he's writing to them about the maturity and growth in regards to the sanctification process that is supposed to take place in all of us who profess that Jesus is the Son of God. And so he is talking to people here who have professed their belief in Jesus as their Savior. That's a very important thing to note here. And what he's saying to them is that there is growth to be had beyond the basics if you are in Jesus. That those who wholly submit to Christ, who are mature in Christ, are skilled in the word of righteousness. They are um, producing fruit that they are able to discern between good and evil. And the reason for this is not just because they have their head on straight. It's not just because they have life in order. But the reason for this is found at the end of verse 14. It says, For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good and evil. And so we see that for those that are mature in Christ, they're not simply sitting idly by, counting the petals of a flower, just letting life pass, doing nothing. What does it say there? It says that they are trained by constant practice. He's talking about the fact that they live out their faith. He's saying the mature in Christ are able to apply the truths of the gospel to their lives. The mature in Christ walk by faith. And all of you are not doing this. All of you are, are dull in your hearing. You've, you've stopped applying the truth of the gospel to your lives. You're, you're not walking by faith. You're stagnant. You are sluggish little babies that still need milk. That's not okay. And so what we see here is that when we are connected to Jesus by faith, when we are rooted in Jesus by faith, we are constantly living out our faith. Therefore, fruit is being produced in us and coming out of us. Maturity is happening in us, and righteousness is growing. And so then we get to chapter 6 and verse 1, and he continues the same thing. It says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. And so he says, starting out here in verse 1, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. This is the same challenge to grow up. And so what we do need to understand here, though, is he's not saying that we are to forget the elementary doctrine of Christ. He's saying that we should have these things down in order that we would be able to build off of that foundation that we have in Jesus He's like, if we just ripped the foundation out of our house, that would be crazy because everything would crumble to the ground, wouldn't it? So Allie and I, we, we moved in over in our house. We bought our first house over a year ago. And I remember having the inspector guy out, and I, and I wanted him to look at the foundation because I knew foundation issues are just annoying and it's costly and all these things. And so I have him come out and look, and he's like, yeah, it's in great condition. 
said, awesome. And, and, and I knew I should have had Jason Williams or somebody that knew what they were talking about come out and look at it, um, but, but I didn't, and I took the guy's word for it. Um, well, those great conditions have been horrible. So anyways, like we, we, you know, it's been hard to, like, we, we, our, our doors won't close sometimes. They won't latch. Like, our wood flooring's shifting, and tiles are popping up. Like, it's just weird. And so all these are foundation issues. And so I've been telling Allie lately, like, like we're getting out of this house. I'm done with it. Like, let's get rid of it. Let's sell it. Let's, let, I don't want to mess with this. We don't, we don't make enough money to, to replace the foundation or whatever. And so, you know, I, I say all that to say this, that, that Jesus is not a faulty foundation that you sell or replace or get rid of. But Jesus is the firm foundation, the perfect, solid foundation for us to build and grow upon. And so he's not saying forget it. He's saying let's build upon it. And so he's saying, let's, let's, let's practice these elementary teachings and let's get these things down so that we can continue to build, we can continue to grow in our faith. He's saying, these elementary things, though, you're, you're hung up on them. Verse 1 and 2, we see what his list, he says in verse 1, the first one he says is not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. Meaning, can you and I start to take our sin seriously? Can we stop acting like it doesn't matter? Can you and I start to understand what true repentance looks like? Can you and I start to rely on the grace of God to overcome our sin, that we would confess to him and we would turn to him in repentance from our dead works? And then he says, and of faith toward God, meaning can you and I start living by faith? Can we start to act like we believe the gospel? Can we start to act like we believe what we sing and what we hear? Can we start to know that God is in control and sovereign over all events that take place in our lives? Can you and I start to not to have to have this little control over every little thing and start walking by faith in what the Lord has for us? And then the next two are really interesting. They're basically just things kind of going on <clears throat> in the church. He says instruction about washing, he's referring to baptism, and laying on of hands, meaning do we know the significance of what baptism is? Do we know the significance of what laying on of hands is? And can we stop making them what they aren't? And then this last one I love because he says here, um, and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. So he's talking about eschatology here, end times here. He's saying, how about instead of you and I spending massive amounts of time and energy arguing over what, um, when Jesus is going to come back or what the end times are going to look like or, or if there's a judgment or if there's not or all these things, and we start to live today like he's coming back tonight. What about if we quit being so concerned with all these things and we start loving people the way he's told us to? And so he's saying these things are majorly important, but this is all elementary stuff. This is like eighth grade football, and you should be playing varsity by now. And so he's saying here, you're not applying these truths to your life. This is elementary things, and you don't have them down. And you should by now. You should be beyond these things. And then in verse 3, we get a very powerful statement that we really just can't overlook. It says, and this we will do if God permits. And so he's saying, we will press on to maturity if God permits us to. And what he's doing with this statement is he's reminding them that they are not in control of their sanctification, maturity, and growth. 
that you and I are not in control of our sanctification, but it is God who is in control. Therefore, it's a sweet reminder that we are not to come to God with our own um, abilities, with our own righteousness that we've gained from our own power, not to barter with God about all these things, but that we are to trust in God and know that he is the one that does the work in us from beginning to completion and that all of it is a gift from the Lord out of his immeasurable grace for us. And this is a key verse in this entire message because sanctification, what we're talking about here, maturity, growth in Christ, only comes when we press in to the Lord and rely on his saving and changing grace. It doesn't come from anywhere else. In verses 4 through 8, we see that the author of Hebrews, he kind of gives this very bold and very uh, loving warning. I I think it's very bold, but also very loving. I would say that these next four verses are really a plea from the, the author to the church in Hebrews where he's ultimately trying to secure them of their salvation, but he does it in a weird way. He does it through a warning. See, in verse four it says, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. And so he's saying here, hey, Hebrews, you guys have got to start paying some attention to this. He's saying here, you guys are being sluggish in your faith. You're sinking into complacency. And because of all that, you've become dull in your hearing. And so you've got to wake up. You've got to start living out your faith. You've got to begin to apply the truths of the gospel to your lives. And so I'm pleading with you to leave these elementary teachings. I'm pleading with you because you are in a very, very dangerous spot right now because what you're showing from all of this is the fact that you are not rooted in Christ, but you're just experiencing spiritual things. And so, really, these four verses kind of stop, uh, it stops me, I remember the first time I read it, it stops me, it stops a lot of us like a deer in the headlights. And so I just want to break it down and talk about it real quick, and then we'll get to really the hard part of this text for so many people and the controversy that goes um, back and forth. And so he begins by saying that it is impossible, which means what it says. It doesn't mean rare. It doesn't mean difficult. It means impossible. And so he says, it's impossible for those who have fallen away to come back. Now, his description of the people that have fallen away is key here because he says, these are people who have experienced spiritual things such as being enlightened, tasting the heavenly gifts, shared in the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. And so these are people that at some point in their lives, they've embraced the things of God. They've even experienced spiritual things in their lives. They've claimed that they have done those things. And then he says, though, that they will not be restored if they fall away um, to repentance because they are then once again crucifying the Son of God. So in other words, the repentance that they claimed to have at the beginning was not true repentance. Because he's saying here, you don't crucify the Son of God again. He's saying here, we don't go in and out of new life with Christ. There is not more than one new birth. There is only one new birth. There's not two. We're not born again and then born again and then born again, but we're born again once. 
And then in verse 7 and 8, he paints this picture with a parable about the field. And it's really going to help us. It helps me a lot to understand the clarity of this. He says that the land that has drunk the rain that has fallen on it produces a crop that is useful. And, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless curse. And in the end, it's going to be burned. And so either you're going to produce a crop that is useful and receive the blessings of God, or you're going to produce thorns and thistles and you'll be burned. There's, there's no middle. And so the big debate here is, is the writer of Hebrews saying that you and I can lose our salvation? Can we lose our salvation? That's what, he's, what, what the big debate here is. And so here's a couple reasons why I believe he's not saying that you can lose your salvation, but instead I believe he's saying that, and he's warning and he's pleading with these people that you can experience spiritual things and in fact not be saved in the first place. And so the first reason um, that I would say this is because I want to look at what Jesus has to say on this, because he has a lot to say about this. And so a great help, just a, a Bible tip, is uh, one, one thing that, that helps us a lot in understanding Scripture is letting Scripture interpret Scripture. Okay, so Jesus has a lot to say about this. He says, um, he warns us in Matthew 7 that we can experience spiritual things and not be saved. He says in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me on that day, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? And I will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. We get another um, example of this with Judas. Right? Judas did things in the name of God. Judas experienced spiritual things. but he was not rooted in Christ. And Jesus knew this, and Jesus called Judas out for this before he even did anything. And so Judas ended up being thorns and thistles. That's what he proved to be, didn't he? And then the second reason I would say is in verse 6 when he says, then have fallen away, he, he's talking in a way that he, he's assuming that in these verses that that person is going to fall away because they are not connected to Jesus. Which leads me to believe that he's saying that this person was never truly converted to begin with. That they may have claimed to be converted, but nothing actually ever took place in their heart. And then the third and final reason I believe that it's because this is because of the picture that he gives with the lands that's, that's really taken from Jesus in Matthew 13 with the parable of the sower with the seed and the good soil. And so he says that those who are rooted in a relationship with Jesus bring forth evidence of this called fruit or useful crop. He's saying that as we are rooted in a relationship with Jesus, as we are rooted in the gospel, that there will be good crop that comes out of us because of who we're connected to. And that those that are not rooted in Jesus will bring forth thorns and thistles. And so it's not a mind trick. This isn't rocket science. You're either going to produce good crop or you're going to produce thorns and thistles. There's no in-between. There's no other land that he talks about there. And then this becomes very clear for us as we look at the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. He says in this that there's going to be some that hear the word and they're not going to respond to it at all. And he says there's others, though, that will hear it. They'll spring up. They'll claim. They'll, they'll have these good times in the name of God, but they will not endure which is what's being talked about here. These people who've experienced spiritual things, but they fall away because of the things of this world. The cares of this world, the desires, the riches, the suffering. 
They do not endure. And then he says there's those who are going to hear it, they're going to understand it, and they're going to bear good fruit because those are the ones who are truly connected to Jesus. And this is saying that, this isn't saying we can lose our salvation. It's saying that you're either saved or you're not. It's saying you either have good soil or you're bad soil. It's saying you either produce crops or you produce thorns and thistles. And so what he's getting at here is, I believe, is the fact that if you have truly tasted the goodness of God by the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you will always be his. It's saying that once you belong to Christ, you always belong to Christ. It's saying that someone that is consistently and persistently, constantly and persistently fruitless does not belong to Jesus and they never have belonged to Jesus. It's saying if there's a lack of fruit in your life, it's not that you have lost your salvation, you never had it to begin with. The point of this warning, this analogy, and and really all of scripture on this subject, mainly from Jesus, is that if we are connected to him, and we are rooted in him, John 15 is another great place to go and look at this, if we are connected to him and we are rooted in him, then he will produce fruit in us, and we will always be his. My my brother and I, we uh, like to call ourselves steak connoisseurs, because we love ourselves steak. Who likes steak? There we go. See, I knew that was a good one. If I, you know, usually don't do the raise the hand thing because it's kind of weird, but steak, it just deserves it. So anyways, so we, go, we went to this restaurant one time. I think I believe it was my engagement party with my family or engagement dinner with my family, like celebrating that me and Allie got engaged. And so we, there's this one place my dad takes us to that's just awesome. It's a very special place. And we go there on special occasions and they, they cook up really nice steaks and they do wild game and some other stuff like that. And so my brother and I, we'd been there before, um, but we were looking uh, through the menu at some steaks, and we told the guy, we're like, hey, uh, yeah, we're big steak people. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, me too. He goes, have you, have you tried the tomahawk steak? And we kind of like looked at each other with this huge grin, and we were like, no, but we would very much like to try the tomahawk steak. And like that thing came out, and it was amazing. And it's exactly looks exactly like it sounds like it's a big old piece of steak that took like we're big boys and it took both of us to eat this thing and then there's a huge bone that's like the size of your forearm and so if you picked it up it's a tomahawk right so it's a tomahawk steak and so I remember like after we ate that steak like no other steak ever compared to that steak and we would go around to these other places and we'd say hey do you have a tomahawk steak and there was actually one place we found it at. It was awesome. It was just as good. I don't, I don't know if it's the same thing or whatever. But anyways, no other steak ever compared to that tomahawk steak. And so what this is saying and what we see here is that once we taste the goodness of Jesus, we don't forget who Jesus is. That nothing else will ever compare once we've tasted the goodness of Jesus that we will desire more and more of Jesus. And so Jesus is like the tomahawk steak, except obviously Jesus is better than a tomahawk steak. And so then we get to Philippians 1.6 real quick. It says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Meaning God does not change his mind about you. He doesn't rescue you and save you and then a year later get bored with you and throw you in the trash. He's not up in heaven like, hey, Spirit, Jesus, come over here and look. You see this guy? Like, I can't believe, did you see what he just did? Like, I mean, I knew he wasn't perfect, Jesus. That's why I sent you, right? But this guy, golly, let's just get rid of him. 
Like, that's not God. That's not what we just read. He says that he who began a good work in you is going to bring it to completion. The Bible says that God is a God of grace and mercy and love. And so he's giving them this loving reminder, that, though, that, that those who are truly connected to Jesus, there's growth happening, there's maturity happening, crop is being produced in them. The point of this warning is to secure us in our salvation by making us aware of the real danger that comes from not being rooted in Christ, but just experiencing spiritual things. Verse 9, the last part as we finish up, it says, and here he really begins to switch the entire tone of the passage. He begins to praise them for their progress, and he begins to assure them of their salvation. He's trying to anchor their souls in the salvation that they have in Jesus. And so he says in verse 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not become sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And so this last part we see, he says, Although we've spoken to you in this way, although we've called you out, although we've challenged you, we feel sure in your case of better things that belong to salvation. And so he's trying to assure them in their salvation, and then he begins to praise and even encourage them. In verse 10, he says that God has not overlooked your work and your love in his name for the saints. And so he's saying we've seen your love for the saints. We've seen your work for the saints. We've seen your service, and we've seen it's all in God's name. We see that you're still doing these things, and this is the fruit of your faith. And so he's pointing these things out in order to then call them to an assurance that will keep them to the end. He says in verse 11 and 12 that his desire for them is his encouragement for them is that they would continue with the full assurance of hope until the end, so that they would not be falling back into being sluggish, so that they would not be continuing to be babies on milk, but that they would be imitators of Christ with the faith and patience and the promises to come through Christ. And so he's continuing to encourage them. He's saying, live out the gospel. Grow into maturity. And he's saying, you do all these things on the basis of the assurance that you have in the hope of Christ. You, you live life on the basis of, of the assurance that you have salvation and eternal life with God. And so he's basically saying, hey, Hebrews, we've seen some good things in you. We've seen you work well. We've seen you love well. We've seen all these things at times. Don't, don't fall back into this lazy pattern of needing milk and, and being a baby. Don't take your eyes off of Christ and start to look for things in the world. He's saying, don't, don't fall back into this old pattern, but, but continue, press on, grow, mature into the deeper things of Christ. Keep going, continue to trust in the Lord, have certainty and assurance in the hope that you have in Christ. He's saying, don't fall back into your old ways. And always remember that what Paul said to the Philippians, that he who began a good work in you is going to bring it to completion. So some of us in here this morning, we're going to, or afternoon now, we're going to go home, and tonight um, we're going to lay down, we're going to try to go to sleep, but our minds are going to be turning, we're going to be thinking, am I saved or am I not saved? Like, 
do I really know God? Like, am I in or am I out? And we're going to freak ourselves out, and we're going to have a panic attack. And so really, all I did today was scare you into uncertainty about your faith. You're welcome. It's nice to be nice. So that, the problem with that whole mindset, though, of what I just talked about was that's, that was not my intention or my desire. And here's the reason, because that was not the intention and the desire of this passage. The, the intention of this passage is not to scare us into uncertainty, but what we see is that the intention of this passage is to wake us up that we would look to Christ where full assurance comes from. Verse 11 and 12, one more time, it says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And so he's saying our desire for you is not that you would be uncertain, but that you would have the full assurance of hope until the end, assurance in the everlasting eternal life with God. And so his desire for these people is not to walk away with uncertainty, but to walk away with the assurance that comes from knowing Christ. And we saw in verse 3, that our assurance comes to us as we rest in the grace and power of God, knowing that we have an eternal hope in him. Because see, it says in verse 12 that when we are assured in that eternal hope, then we will not be sluggish, but we will be imitators of Christ through faith, patience, and of those who will inherit the promises. And so what he's saying here is that the focus of our lives is not on all of our screw-ups, the focus of our lives as Christians is not on all of our sins, but it's on Jesus who has our hope and who is our assurance. He's saying here, Christians, get your eyes up. One of my favorite passages in all the Bible is Colossians 3. It says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. And so he's saying here, if we've been raised with Jesus, if we have a faith rooted in Jesus, then we are to seek the things that are above. We are to set our minds on the things that are above. Why? Because that's where Christ is. That's where our hope is. That's where the full assurance comes from. Brothers and sisters, there's too many of us that walk through this life with uncertainty and it's because we are focused on the things here on earth rather than getting our heads up and being focused on him. This is saying that as we look to Jesus, rooted in Jesus, that we are to grow and we, we mature in our faith because we're driven by the grace of Jesus. We're driven by the hope that we have in him. And so when we do this, I believe it, it not only helps with our assurance, but it also helps us not disregard the call here to wake up from our sloth and our lazy lives. If we're honest this morning, there's some of us in here who call ourselves Christians and we need to hear the call to wake up. I think that at times it's a good and healthy thing for us to take a step back and just evaluate our walk with Christ. I think it's a good and healthy thing for us to ask questions of, am I maturing in my relationship with Jesus or am I still in infancy? Am I bearing fruit in my life or am I bearing thorns and thistles? Am I rooted in a relationship with Jesus? Does my life show that or does my life show that I'm disconnected from Jesus and I'm just experiencing spiritual things? 
It's safe to ask those questions. It's what we do with those questions then that's the, the big deal. Because what we're supposed to do with the answers of those questions is then take them to the Lord humbly and fearfully and ask for his grace and his power and his strength to work in us and through us, asking God to let us get our eyes up upon Jesus. This is really what the author is trying to say in Hebrews here. He's, he's calling these people out in hopes that they would get their eyes on Christ because they're sluggish. They're stagnant. They're not living out the gospel in their everyday lives. They've taken their eyes off of Jesus, and so he's pointing out to them that there are some of them who claim to follow Jesus, and if they continue in what they're doing, they're going to prove that they are not, in fact, rooted in him at all. He's saying here that we cannot treat Christianity like it's just some social club that we get to come to. We don't treat Christianity like it's just some fad that we walk in and out of as we please. He's saying here that if you are rooted in Jesus, that you don't walk into church week in and week out, sit in your seat, hear the word of God preached, walk out, and then live your life apart from him and live your life the way that you want to live it the rest of the week. He's saying if you're doing that, then you are not resting in the grace of Jesus. If you're doing that, you are not living life as though Christ has set you free to be led by the Spirit. If you're doing those things, you are not going to mature, you are not going to grow, and it's in fact that you are not rooted in Jesus to begin with. And so a lot of us in here, we need to hear this warning. We need to hear this call to wake up. We need to be assured, but we need to know that there's a call here and there's a warning. We all, though, need to hear that Jesus is better. We need to know that the way to deal with this is not that we start scrambling around trying to do all these, but we look to Jesus. We look to Jesus. Because, as we saw here, apart from him, Apart from a rooted relationship in Jesus, we will produce nothing but thorns and thistles. And then do you see what it said that happens to those thorns and thistles? It says they're burned. But when we're rooted in a relationship with Jesus, we grow into deeper and deeper maturity. That Jesus becomes even sweeter to us. That we have deeper joy and deeper satisfaction in the God of this universe because of him. And we have the full assurance of hope that will keep us to the end. And so for some of you in here today, um, you've, you've, just, you've never trusted in Jesus. And although the grace, of God's, uh, the grace of God has fallen on you, you've never trusted in the gospel. And you are dead in your sins and trespasses. You, like all of us, have fallen short of the glory of God. And so I want to give you a loving yet hard reality today that comes straight from Scripture, comes straight from verse 8, that if you are not connected and rooted in Christ, then you are worthless and you will be burned. And so this is not a light subject. This is the biggest issue that you will ever face. It's eternal loss. But here's the other thing we see in here. The good news today, the hope that you can have today is that Jesus made a way for you. That Jesus bore the wrath of God on the cross. That he sacrificed himself for your sins and he paid the price. 
that he lived a perfect and righteous life and he has given you his righteousness that you might stand holy and blameless before God. That he defeated death by resurrecting from the grave so that you would not have eternal loss but that you would have eternal life and joy and satisfaction in him. And that all you have to do today is have faith and believe that he is the son of God. And it says that once you do that, that you will be born again, that you will be given a new heart, you will have new life in him. It says that you will um, be sanctified by his power. It says that you will be justified before him. It says that you will be a son, a daughter of God, that you will have an inheritance and that you will live with him in his kingdom forever. And so I pray for those of you that are in that spot this morning that you would trust in Jesus today, that you would place your faith in Jesus and that today would be the day of salvation for you. And I pray for the rest of us that that call ourselves Christians that we would take a step back and we would take a healthy look at our lives as Christ followers, that we will hear this challenge that we are to grow and we are to mature in our walk with Jesus, that we will hear that warning and that we would wake up and get our eyes where they need to be on Christ because he's the one who's overcome everything for us. He's the one who has achieved an eternal hope for us, which is why Jesus is better than anything you can have. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you today as sinners. Lord, we come to you today broken. Lord, but we know that the good news is that you have made us whole. Lord, you have sacrificed your son for our sins. You have brought us into relationship with you, the creator of the universe. Lord, we glorify your name for that. We, we hallowed it. Lord, we pray today that for those of us that have not trusted in you, Lord, that we would maybe today for the first time place our faith in Jesus. Lord, that we would find a relationship rooted in him. Lord, that one that we, that we find joy in, one that we find satisfaction in, and one that we find the love and the grace and the mercy of you in. I pray for those of us that claim Christ, that, that say we are Christ's followers, Lord, that we would be woken up today if we need to be. Lord, that we would get our eyes upon you and not on the things that are here on earth, Lord, that we would not walk through this life with uncertainty, but we would walk through it with the assurance of hope where we can do none of this on our own. And so I pray that your spirit would come upon us in this moment. I pray that your spirit would work and convict and change and call and save and mature and grow in all the things that your spirit does, Lord. Holy Spirit, would you come in this moment upon our lives? It's in your son's name we pray.